Welcome to the Open Div Summit, a four-day pod conference around spirituality and meaning-making in the modern world. Each day, February 25th to 28th, we'll be releasing 10 to 20 pre-recorded conversations with top academics, theologians, clergy, and secular community leaders. In addition, each day we're hosting several live, interactive events on Zoom. We'd love to see you there. For more, check out summit.opendiv.org. Today's conversation is with Dr. Erica Galt. Erica is an assistant professor of Africana Studies with a PhD in American Studies from the State University of New York at Buffalo. Galt is a scholar, poet, and ordained elder whose justice-centered work blends research, art, and religion to advocate for the rights of young Black people. Galt's work focuses on the intersection of religious history, technology, and urban Black life in post-industrial America. On the topic of hip-hop, religion, and digital ethnography, she's delivered and published a number of papers regionally, nationally, and internationally. She currently has a single author volume on the digital religious lives of young Black Christians under contract with NYU Press, and Galt is also the co-editor of Beyond Christian Hip Hop Towards Christians and Hip Hop from Routledge 2019. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Erica, I'm so excited to be sitting here with you today. It is good to be here. Yeah, this is a pleasure. Uh, Maybe just to start, I originally came across your work through some of your papers on hip-hop and Christianity, hip-hop and religion, and that you're currently working on a book. But maybe just to start, can you tell us a little bit more about how did you get into studying hip-hop and and religion as an academic? Oh, yeah. So I was really trying to do something more academic. You know, like I was thinking that I would do uh, history and then for a little while, maybe religious history or something a little more respectable to my mind. Because I I didn't know when I was an undergraduate that this was a a full area of study that folks were already working out of. And then Angela Dillard, a scholar at my undergraduate institution, through a lot of rigmarole, I finally got her to serve as my faculty advisor. And I was really impressed with her because... By that time in my academic career, I hadn't met a Black woman who had written a book, you know? And so I was very impressed that she had this book out. And it wasn't in my area of study, but I kind of gravitated to her on a predominantly white campus. So we started taking an independent study together in Black religion. And she made me aware of a number of texts that I had never heard of or I hadn't thought of as Black religion um, as as an entire field. And so we started having a conversation around one book in in particular uh, by David Pickney, The Afro-American Jeremiah. And it was so fascinating to me to think of uh, folks like W.B. Du Bois and, and Booker T. Washington as these religious voices and really forming what we think of as Black religious scholarship, as an area of study and studying in particular the Black church, because that was something I did on Sunday. And since we were Pentecostal holiness folks, that also meant we did that on Wednesday and Friday and all week when revivals came. Right, right. That that was something apart from this mostly white academic space that I was now in. And so when I came to thinking about this as an academic pursuit, it was really in trying to articulate what is this beautiful world 
that I've grown up in? And what does it mean to study that space and to try to preserve some of its most interesting artifacts, um, its texts, and just really beginning to think in these kinds of academic spaces about what it meant to be Black and studying something that just kind of had always come naturally. Was there a possibility for that? Yeah. Right, right, right. Well, and so I'm curious, you know, what what was so interesting about kind of looking at texts from W.E.B. Du Bois and, and other folks as religious texts, as religious thinking? Like, why was, you know, what was that like and why was it kind of a novel um, approach at the time? Yeah. Yeah, so one of his texts in particular I'd heard of, Souls of Black Folk from mm-hmm. high school, but it was in college where, and, and even past that into seminary, where I really started to consider, oh yeah, he's talking about souls. What does it mean, that spiritual portion, to think about Blackness as this kind of both spiritual and existential space mm-hmm. in which we work out a sort of context for 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 knowing God or knowing divine things out of black experience. So souls of black folk was my entry point, and then into seminary, I began to find out about his rich work around religion and his ethnographic work, knowing him as a sociologist, and really beginning to think about how one studies black religion, which is really like trying to catch fireflies. It is this ever-moving, ever-shifting kind of light um, mm-hmm. that, that you're seeking after. And something so rich and so beautiful, what does it mean to study that was something I was trying to grasp. And that pointed me in the direction, his works and others. For me, I think one of the missing pieces, because I, I felt somewhat alienated and, and very much intimidated by being at largely PWIs for most of my time in academia um, as a grad student and an undergrad. And those texts helped me reconnect, but there was a sense of othering that went on even in reading those texts as a woman and as someone coming out of a Pentecostal holiness tradition. Uh, Mm. W.B. Du Bois had some rather unkind remarks to say about who he thought as culturally less than him, who may have been Black. So there was these kinds of um, tensions of class that began to arise in his work that were also lived out denominationally and how he talked about the Methodists as opposed to the Pentecostal holiness, which in the early 20th century was still this kind of upstart. And it was still this kind of marginal storefront thing where people look funny, sound funny, act different. And that was all I knew. That was what I grew up with. No, I was saying the kind of class differences and then around denominational differences, Pentecostal holiness being rather new at the turn of the um, 20th century and it being the domain of, of women. A lot of women are, are, are finding leadership roles in Pentecostal holiness spaces because you can just put your shingle out or uh, just right. open up the storefront. And many of them are women. That's, that's the kind of history of my family. My grandmother was a pastor and her husband passed away. And so uh, she's got these 11 children and she's a storefront preacher, essentially in a Pentecostal holiness uh, church. And 
even when I uh, ask my mother about this, because I'm just astounded by this, my mother kind of tells me these stories matter factly. And I'm like, what was that like to be a woman, a black woman at that, at near close to the, the dawn of the 20th century saying, I have a call on my life and not just a denomination, but a world <laughs> that does not affirm at that point, really the call of women preachers and to be a black woman and, and saying that as early as 14 years old, you don't hear that kind of story. And for scholars, for black male leadership in that moment, and W.E.B. Du Bois was very much a part of shaping that, that was immediately tossed to the side. You could immediately dismiss Pentecostal holiness on its face just by virtue of the fact that largely its face was women. Um, mm. And even for what remains the largest denomination, Church of God in Christ today, Pentecostal holiness, they even weren't allowing women to preach. Right. So these women were kind of turned out of not only Black Christianity, black the Black church, but had to make their own way, even in Pentecostal holiness traditions. And I come from that. And I'm so mm. proud of that, that I come from these kind of women. But when I was in undergraduate, when I was in grad school, when I'm very honest in the, in the way you can only be in reflection, when you mm. think back of who you were and, and why you did what you did and said what you said, when I think back, I was very ashamed of that then. And some of me struggling to articulate my voice was struggling to say this is my history in a way that didn't talk about my history. And that was that was really problematic that I had to rethink and reimagine what my narrative looked like if I owned the legacy of my past where I came from. Right, right. That's so meaningful and such a... Such a wonderful story of your grandmother. I imagine must have taken great courage and really, uh, yeah, what an amazing legacy to be able to pass down to your kids as well of kind of fighting against, you know, tradition or rigid institution. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, it's most interesting to me that it wasn't handed down like, you know, these, this is a treasure or, or, you know, your mother's pearls, like this is something important to hold on to it. It was mm. it was kind of um, assumed that you you gather the value of it. And as as I think now as a parent, what what I want my daughter to know, I try to be a little more intentional about that, because in my early 20s, I was not only overlooking that this was, in fact, a treasure but there there was a shame attached to this kind of history that should not have been there. And so I wish it had been more emphatically been taught that here's the way we've been perceived, but there's this kind of richness in there. And, and maybe it was, and I missed it because I know songs were passed down, but it was always assumed in my kind of tradition, women preach, that's what they do. Hmm. And it wasn't until I went to seminary and people were asked, so, asking, so what kind of problems did you encounter? And I was like, like, what are we talking about? And I was kind of clueless that there was this whole world out there where women were routinely <laughs> not allowed to preach. You know, now 
my my um on on a few occasions I have been politely looked over or not asked to preach in settings where it makes sense, you know, that I would be the one to speak at certain things. And I get it now that those things routinely happen to women, but because I didn't come up in that culture and because it was holiness, uh, which means you're set apart from everything else. So going to other denominations, I should say, kind of as a footnote to this, wasn't allowed. So I, I didn't really see how people were being treated. But into my 20s, where I started to, as we say, go out and preach, like go out of the church was like this other world. Um, mm-hmm. Then I began to see the routine nature of um, sex discrimination for women. And in particular, the way it happens for Black women was when I really started thinking about, wait, that was a treasure that I had, a space where Black women could cultivate their own religious voice and share their insights from the pulpit, be respected in leadership, that was gold. And so when when I talk about the history of women, it is a real affirmation of, of the way they pushed through and kind of created that space that in so many ways was sacred in and of itself. Right, right. And it seems almost... Although it didn't really communicate how special it was. It seems almost in some ways a gift that it was just communicated as that, no, this is just normal. This is the way things are. Um, you know, that, you know, there's not something about this being special. This is just, you know, this is normal, right? Yeah. Yeah. That, that's, that's a really good point. Yeah. Maybe I wouldn't value it so much now if it hadn't been like normalized. Yeah. I think of a lot of other artists. I was, uh, actually watching last night the uh, documentary on uh, Zora Neale Hurston, where it's talking Mm -hmm. about her life in Eatonville, Florida, and the world she's able to create later on, it got me thinking, came out of the normalcy of Black folks just doing basic things like walking upright and singing (laughs) and dancing and loving and her father being the mayor and not Mm -hmm. saying this is really special, everyone, on, on a continuous basis, you know, that like maybe that gave us some of the great work that we saw later on from her. Right. Yeah. This is the way it should be, right? This is yeah. Just, yeah. Yeah. Well, and so I want to get into some of the, the research work you do. And I know you're, in addition to, I know you're, you're ordained in the, the Inlam tradition. You, I, I believe you, you've done some preaching within, within the kind of the holiness traditions or, or other. You're a slam poet as well. And you study kind of hip hop and, and religions. And I'm curious, you know, is kind of um, what led you to, to studying hip hop kind of the, you know, the, is it kind of like the culmination of a lot of these interests and like your experience in Pentecostal tradition, your experience as a poet? And does hip hop kind of like bridge the gap between some of these different spaces? Or, yeah. This is the other side of the coin about the community that I came mm. up in. Hip hop wasn't allowed, it was like, an actual ordinance against hip hop. Oh, wow. That sounds so crazy to me, you know, that that a whole thing that is really essential to some folks' identity can be banned. You know, it's like saying, yeah. I'm banning your blackness here, or I'm banning you from being a woman. You know, yeah. how, how do you do something like that? The church that I was in, I expressed a call to ministry when I think I was about 21. And I 
was working towards ordination in that denomination, the one that I, I had grown up in, an ordinance uh, from the senior bishop came out and I was actually one of the people in the meeting that read the ordinance um, <laughs> that it was now banned. Yeah, I, I read it to the general congregation, which was like really interesting because I'm reading it like, what is this? But it said because it didn't make sense, it was indecipherable and it had then the spirit of confusion in it. And God is not the author of confusion and several other kind of statements regarding it. But by the time that I was like deep into the, the ordination process um, in that church and I was standing there reading it, I was already going through this kind of transformation that hip hop had very much been foundational in. When I um, started undergraduate in 2000 um, at NYU, I was living right there in, in Greenwich Village. Um, mm. And it was this wonderful hub. Uh, I think a year, my second year, 2001, I believe the Bowery Poetry Cafe opened up mm. and I was going quite regularly to the New Yorican and I had a professor who was one of the slam champions there and he was teaching our class. I was taking spoken word and it was all hip hop infused. Um, my work mm. was becoming about hip hop. And so I didn't really come to hip hop through rap music, even though that was in the, the backdrop of so much of my growing up, but it wasn't really something I was a part of. I became a mm. part of hip hop through spoken word during my undergraduate years. And yeah. so in my senior year, when I expressed a call to ministry, I, I was already a performing slam poet very much into the culture. And that to me was, that was the nail. I said, ah, it's really time to go. I was by then, entering a PhD program. And I was studying why are young Black people leaving the church and really framing it in the context of the hip hop generation and how they view themselves and how hip hop was this kind of saving grace for them and that it articulated their identity. And here was my church that was totally an antithetical to that. Um, was it the ordinance that came down while you're in the ordination was an ordinance banning hip hop? Is that? Yes. We, we don't wow. listen to hip hop here. We don't want it in our services. We don't want any hip hop praise dancers. We actually don't want praise dancing. You know, like, uh, um, yeah, it was, it, it was, and, and I, I, if I thought about it, I'm sure there was something specific that that perhaps happened, but it I, I can't even remember why that moment it needed to be said, but it was and it was disseminated to all of the churches um, wow. that you weren't supposed to be involved in hip hop. And some of that goes back to the the, the holiness portion of Pentecostal about remaining separate. And so Facebook was on the chopping block as well. No Facebook. Mm -hmm. um, at that time, the church has, uh, that church, um, which most of my family on both sides is still a part of, has gone through a tremendous transformation. Some, in some ways it hasn't, but on those issues, I see people on Facebook now. <laughs> right, right. But I see some of them saying you're going to hip hop your way to hell. You know? right. so, oh my gosh. Uh, uh. 
So, oh, so oh, you know, steps forward. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And so how did the, you know, the, you say kind of poetry and, and kind of uh, the spoken word tradition is kind of like your back door into hip hop. How did that, you know, how did that kind of transition to kind of the full blown research interest in hip hop? Yeah. So I was trying to find my way out of that church, um, but I had grown up there. And like I, like I said, both my maternal and paternal family was all a part of that church. So that meant whatever you were getting together for was really situated around conferences, assemblies, conventions, all of the church events were family events. And so to kind of divorce myself from that church was in a way to move out from my family. And and that was, that was really Mm. hard. It, It, even after I said I was leaving, it was another year before I did that. But hip hop as scholarship really gave me the language and kind of the footing uh, to begin that movement because I was still living at home in Rochester, New York, and Mm. I wanted to start my PhD at the State University of New York, SUNY Buffalo now. And I wanted to, I I framed my, my question when I entered around why are young Black people leaving the church? It changed like everybody's initial research question does, but that, that was my kind of question. And I was saying that hip hop was the way to study that. And I started looking at gospel rappers doing the ethnography of gospel rappers in the city of Buffalo and how they formed communities and what I call not a church. They would Mm. always be, they would always say, this is not a church, you know, it's not a church event, but they would be having things in the church basement. Um, It was always like black church adjacent, but it was a way to get out of the church. So looking at them really put me deeper into hip hop. And then I got really involved in slam poetry, spoken word. And that's where I met my husband in Buffalo. And he was a slam poet. And so we started performing together and and, and writing and, and doing a lot of things like getting married. But mm. it was hip hop that was really the context in which I was able to move from where I was into a new space. It gave me that sort of broader context to think beyond uh, Pentecostal holiness. holiness. Um, and so that became the site upon which I, I built my research and started thinking more broadly about not just gospel rappers, but what is hip hop in terms of its spirituality? How does it shape folks' identity, and what does it mean when people, myself included, are using hip-hop to move beyond the Black church. And so many of the young Black people who I encountered were doing the same thing that began to wrap it around Black millennial religious identity and hip-hop to think about where they were going. And so and so those became some of my basic questions um, that yeah. I began to pose and, and seek out. Yeah, well, and I'd love to go deeper. What, what were some of the things you found? Like, you know, what did kind of hip hop maybe offer folks who were looking for a bridge out of the traditional black church and, and uh, you know, 
did you find kind of communities and you know structures in some ways mirrored almost like church infrastructure maybe without some of the dogma and, and yeah i'm curious what um what, what what is the actual experience like yeah so i i think there's great variety initially many of the people that i interviewed were involved in hip-hop prior to a religious or spiritual transformation that led them back into church but hip-hop was the way that they articulated their faith. So they were finding ways to be young and Black in the church, and hip-hop was a way of doing that. Mm. Um, and then for some others, hip-hop was a way out of the Black church. It was a way into the, the public sphere where they got to really be themselves. And part of their selves was religious, but they had this other love as a creative that was hip-hop oriented. And then for some of them, you still hear some people say, I am hip-hop. For them, how they move, how they live, how they talk was hip hop. And so that was the identity. And I think my initial church had really taken the most surface kind of performance of hip hop identity to draw this very general kind of idea of what hip hop did. It was scary and, you know, hip hop can, can do all of these awful things. And that was really only one version of it. But yeah, I found great complexity. And I think now my most recent publication of my book that looks at young Black folks and hip hop, in that one, I, I draw an even broader kind of view of young Black uh, Christians and looking at them in digital spaces that often are detached from the Black church and how one finds this kind of religious voice that you make all, all your own. But it is this mm. one that is very much identifying with the Black church. But I think of them now as performances because there are artists that will draw on the Black church as an identity or draw on hip-hop, but they remain beholden to neither the Black church or to hip-hop. One chapter where I talk about um, the artist Lecrae, who caused a lot of waves among uh, Christian artists a number of years ago when he said, I'm not a Christian rapper. And now nobody's a Christian rapper. You'll be hard pressed mm. to find anyone say, I'm a gospel rapper over here. You know, right. not anyone who actually has a deal, you know, with like Columbia Records or someone. But um, everything has gotten like very religious. Kanye West really should be uh, thought of. Uh, it's been a wild year for him. So, so yeah. maybe. Uh, how we think about his legitimacy as 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 a historical figure is is kind of tainted. But I think going into the future, we'll look back and talk about him as the kind of godfather of religious hip hop, of religious rap, because he he really sets the stage for creating the kind of Christian or Black church in hip hop voice that we see that has emerged in the last couple of years. And I mean, the first one we usually go to is, is Jesus Walk. Um, but yeah. if you talk about his whole label and how he brings along as a producer so many other artists and this kind of idea that God and Christian, Black Christian language can be in the public sphere, 
that's Kanye West all day long. There would be no chance the rapper without a Kanye West. Um, yeah. Well, and it's so interesting because I, I know myself, I grew up relatively agnostic and at times like pretty atheistic. And, you know, my, my kind of spiritual journey has unfolded uh, from there as an adult. But even, you know, in my like teen years and I was still pretty, you know, agnostic, I, I would listen to Jesus Walks and I would get into it. And it, it, it you know, it, in its explicit Christian language, it's explicit Christian theology, but there's something about the kind of themes, I think, of that, that song and, and especially just the you know, that sense of narrative of, you know, wanting to rap about what's important, even if that might not be acceptable socially or may not be um, economically, you know, the, the biggest thing to do. There's something really like meaningful about that. It feels very like, you know, heroes or you know, journey-ish, if you will, about kind of making a stand and, and potentially taking a sacrifice for what one believes in. Um, well, and, and I'm curious, you know, more, more recently he's done the, the Sunday service, I, I believe it was called, or I, I have a friend in LA who, who's dropped in a handful of times, but really explicitly combining, you know, the black Jewish experience with hip hop and, and with himself as this kind of, uh, you know, I don't know if you call him pastor or worship leader. I know he brings in other voices as well. Um, but I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that. And if you have maybe, you know, if you've seen other examples of folks who are maybe, less, you know, people from the hip hop sphere bringing in the church, but maybe, you know, faith institutions or faith denominations that are really interfacing well with hip hop as an idea or hip hop, the hip hop community to really kind of create vitality amongst their, their tradition. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I'm still kind of fleshing out what, what some of the main takeaways from Kanye's Sunday service was. I think now at, Ask me in a couple of years and, and this could change. Yeah. Um, but it, it being so close in, in the rearview mirror, but, but, but still very close. I would more frame it in the terms of the economics of um, hip hop and of black spirituality. It's marketability in black communities still remains. And so I really see Kanye capitalizing on an audience that the black church has totally missed and saying you have to come to church to be Black church. And several ways that young Black Christians are finding to do Black church apart from the Black church. There's a group that I study called Unfit Christian, which has over 3,000 members online. Hmm. And it is essentially a Black church without the church, with 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 no pastor, even though they, they call their founder Passa, uh, hmm. endearingly so. Hmm. But... It has become this space where um, folks can say, I'm transgender, I'm gay, I'm lesbian. For some reason, I am on the outskirts of the Black church, but I still love doing Black church stuff. You know? Um, So you get to be ratchet and Black church. Like, like, Like it's all of those things together. And young Black Christians have created those spaces in a digital context. And I see Kanye West, who can't be thought of technically so as a millennial, but has so much influence on that group. We have to think about him as very adjacent and very much a part of that culture. I I see him really figuring out the economics of that. And so when people say Kanye West is a genius, I think that's the genius, the part of the genius that's most overlooked, Um, Mm. not in the music, but in the economics of it. Because, and I have to ask some of my musical scholar friends, but to my ear, I didn't see anything particularly new 
<clears throat> or innovative right. about the sound that he produced. It was everything I grew up with in the 90s in terms of choirs. I don't know. I'm, I'm an old millennial at 38. Mm. So maybe young millennials, right. maybe they were like, wow, there's like a whole choir up there, you know, but that was kind of what we grew up with, with the choirs like marching in. So yeah. it, 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 it didn't feel new. So I was like, okay. So I, I was trying to like figure out on what level does this operate? And yeah. then, um, about two or three months ago when the piece came out about um, the members suing because they hadn't been paid yet, it was kind of like, that's what this feels like. It feels like someone's making money. You know? right. Um, right. Yeah, so so there's, there, there is something, I think, really important to think about who owns Black spirituality, how it's marketed, and what it looks like in the public sphere. And how players can move between those worlds like Kanye West and make money off of it. Yeah, well, and I think it's so interesting because, you know, I think in, in many different spheres, the you know, traditional denominations are kind of um, not actively targeting millennials, right? Or kind of the, the group of folks that are feeling alienated or kind of maybe on the outers, outskirts of the church for some reason um, or, or whatever faith tradition, right? And so, you know, folks like Kanye who maybe swim in both pools can kind of put together an offering that is compelling, maybe even if it's just the structures of church, but it's with Kanye, you know, it kind of, it brings his kind of cachet, his coolness, his like, his sense of this isn't just you know, you know, a staid kind of like pastor or someone who's, you know, telling you what to do. Like Kanye is rapping about all sorts of worldly things in addition to talking about Christianity, right? Or talking about God. And so, but, but, but at the same time, Kanye has, as far as I know, no formal religious training or formation or no kind of like, he doesn't seat himself within a tradition where there's accountability or kind of ethical kind of formation or all these things. And like, what does it mean for these new spaces you know, and, and maybe, you know, I, I'm almost thinking about parallels to your grandmother and how, you know, the turn of the 20th century, it, the storefront churches were these kind of like things that were looked down upon by major denominations and were maybe like not as seen to be as legitimate or, 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 or you know, tied in with tradition. Maybe in some ways this is the, the kind of birth of a, a new movement of folks that are doing things outside of tradition. And in some ways, like with your grandmother, I think the taking moving beyond traditional sources of religious authority can be really helpful. And when we have people hanging out their shingle, what are the kind of ethical or, you know, yeah, how do we make sure folks are approaching it in a way that isn't just about making a dollar, that isn't just commercializing spirituality, right? And that's really trying to approach it with the depth that um, at its best it can be. Yeah, so, hmm. The thing that that I think is really fascinating that you're really on to is this kind of pattern of Black innovation. Okay, I'm living in the segregated South. You know, I'll, I'll figure out how to create a whole Black sound and they'll put it on race records and then I won't own it anyway, any, anymore. So there, there's always these ways that, that Black folks have figured out a way out of no way, um, made a way around. And done like just some fascinating and kind of creative things. I think when it's tied to the market in, in the way that it is for Kanye. So there's a whole apparatus behind him that, of course, my grandmother never had. 
So right. so he kind of starts out with this kind of suspicion of is this black innovation or is this the same old black exploitation? You know, right. um, is this right. a way of exploiting right. black sound that I think is difficult to answer, but is something that is very much a part of black innovation today, especially when it comes from someone like Kanye West that is so tied to capitalism and, and has been very, I mean, I, I ain't saying she's a gold digger, you know, like, right. like this, 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 this is a part of what he does. And then I think there's the gender dynamic as well. Who is allowed to be innovative in this way, you know, and, and, and how do we respond to them? You know, so, so the black women, and I have a couple examples, but I don't want to stereotype examples, but black women have less likely of a possibility of doing the kind of innovative work that Kanye West did, and it be counted as innovation, you know? So mm. Kanye West, I, I, I could put in there Ice Cube, few other who have come out quite recently, even, um, Snoop Dogg. I'm I'm thinking of hip hop, black male hip hop voices that have mm. kind of spoken loudly in these ways and using hip hop to meld the black church. Even R. Kelly, R and B, they're usually really embraced as black church. Like like we don't ask anything about. Wait a minute, do they really go? Like are they re- are they making money off of this? Like are they really in the black church? They really just get up and tout some of the same misogynistic, <laughs> heteropatriarchal right. statements that we have come to love in the Black church. And they right. sound right. Black church because it's the same sexist talk that the Black church gives. And so on that level, that kind of Black innovation, I think, is not only allowed, but it makes us comfortable. And... Yeah. And yeah, so I can say a lot. So when we talk about black innovation today, I think we have to nail down why some innovation gets through and whether it's really innovation or whether it's just black males talking black man stuff that we like to hear. Yeah. Right, right. There's just putting a new facade uh, or marketing in a new way, the same old ideas that maybe are still like sending people away from from the those churches or spaces, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, may, and maybe in the same way that you know Kanye or some of these other voices are trying to um, provide an experience, uh, you know, in some ways very much like a product, right? To to folks who are not getting what they want, maybe through the traditional black church, maybe there's also opportunity for folks to offer something that's really truly innovative. That is something that you know these folks are not offering, right? Um, yeah, I, I mean, because largely look at where he went um, for his Sunday services. Um, uh, he went to um, uh, forget the pastor's name. Um, it's, it'll come back to me afterwards. But he went to the black male pastor in, in Atlanta, Howard University, uh, out in out in Utah. I mean, the, these are spaces that have emphatically affirmed, while they may have affirmed social justice, they've also affirmed a certain notion of, of who gets to be in leadership, uh, right. who gets to lead and that that is black and male. And Kanye West, still looks like that, not just on him being black and male, 
but him touting a certain theology. Why didn't he go to Otis Moss Church in Chicago? Mm. You know, like he went to some specific sites, you know? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Right. Oh, and it's interesting too, because, you know, as like a product or a market, like viewed economically, a lot of the more mainstream, maybe more antiquated uh, theologically institutions also have the most following in some places. And also, actually, I don't know, uh, I do not. I, I do not keep tabs on the following of different churches, but I know. I know there are many kind of mega churches and more fundamentalist, more you know, maybe antiquated traditions, which like in their explicit beliefs towards origination, all this you know, have stuff around gender and and LGBT um, that is not you know what we think of in kind of twenty twenty one as as uh, what one wants to put in their in their you know core manifesto of beliefs, right? Um, yeah. And, and resources still tapped up in there, right? Still kind of held in those spaces. Yeah, that that that's so true. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, Erica, I realize I think we're we're about at time, and uh, kind of a in some ways hopeful, some ways challenging note to end on. I think with the maybe the opportunity for for new innovation, and also noting some of the ways that existing inequities and and, and resource pooling kind of continues to to elevate certain voices over others. Um, but before we jump off, I just want to give a chance, you know, for folks who want to go deeper into your work and some of the research you've done, your, your, your latest book, where should they look to find out more information about you or about your work online? Yeah, so you can go to digitalblackreligion.myportfolio. Hmm. I think that's it, yeah digitalblackreligion.myportfolio. All of my stuff is there. Also, uh, check out NYU's Press, their uh, new publications. Later this year, my work on young Black Christians and hip-hop will be out as well. Amazing. I'm excited to read it when it's out, and uh, we'll um, find the link and put it in in the show notes as well. Erica, thank you so much for being here. Such a wonderful conversation. Thank you for the conversation as well. It's a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this conversation from the OpenDiv Summit. For more, check us out at summit.opendiv.org.